Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father John Flader on the topic, The Old Testament Precursors of the Mass. This August 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Father John Flader is a priest of the Opus Dei Prelature and was previously the director of the Catholic Adult Education Centre. Well, you all know me, so um, no more need for introductions. And this talk is the first one in my course on getting more from the Mass. And in all the books that I used to prepare that, and I had at least half a dozen, none of them had the antecedents of the Mass in the Old Testament. And I had read something about it many years ago, and I thought, well, if the book doesn't have it, I'll have to find it by myself. So this has the, the possibility that there's some errors in here. Well, not errors, because I found all of this, and it's all true. But what we see when we look at what you're going to hear tonight is that all the essential elements and parts of the Mass are already there in the Old Testament. I started giving a course last night in Lidcombe on the church, and we looked at the preparation of the church in the Old Testament. And I reminded the students, and I remind all of you, and it's just a reminder because we know this, that the Old Testament is the preparation for Christ, the preparation for the Gospel. I had a question asked of me for the Catholic Weekly, which was, why do we read Old Testament readings in the Mass? That's past. That's for the Jews. And, of course, I said, the, the Jews are our forebears. God chose them, gave them their faith to prepare for Christ and the New Testament. The whole Old Testament is about Christ. We've just come through Easter, and we've seen how our Lord, with the disciples of Emmaus, went back to the scriptures and explained all of those scriptures that applied to him. And he spoke in particular of Moses and the prophets. And later that evening in the upper room, St. Luke records that he explained then to all of the assembled people there. And he went back to Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. The Old Testament is about Christ. The Old Testament is a preparation for the New, and the liturgy of the Old Testament is a preparation for the Mass too. So we'll make a little bit of an excursion through the Old Testament and see what we can find that is an element in today's Mass. I may not give you everything that I have in these notes, because there's quite a few pages. But the first thing we find in both ancient cultures, be it in Africa, the Middle East, the Aztecs, the Mayas, in the Americas, is that sacrifice forms a part of most religions. The Greeks, the Romans, had their sacrifices. People had prayers and they had sacrifices as one way of worshipping God. And the Jews were going to have that too. 
And whereas those other religions are not revealed by God, but just natural religions, man's natural response to this supreme being that somehow controls his destiny, and they had a sacrifice which they came up with from their human nature, giving something back to this God by way of begging him for something, atoning for their sins, thanksgiving for their blessings. Well, God revealed his religion to the Jews, and he revealed to them that an essential part of their worship was to be a sacrifice. But we see the sacrifice in the Old Testament before the revealed religion, properly so-called, so that Abraham, for example, will sacrifice his son Isaac. And when Isaac asks where the victim is going to come from, because he and his father are walking out onto the mountain, Abraham replies, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Abraham didn't have the benefit of a revealed religion, although he was asked by God to do that. Melchizedek offers bread and wine to Abraham, who also blesses him. And the Jews, throughout their history, and especially from the time of Moses and the revealed religion, have sacrificed as an essential part of their worship. If you go into the book of Numbers, and I've had, I just quote and downloaded a whole series of texts all in a row from that chapter of Numbers 28, and it describes the worship that Moses and the Jewish people were to offer to God. And summarizing it, it was two lambs to be offered every day, one in the morning, one in the evening. And in addition to that, on the Passover, not on the Passover, on the Sabbath, they would have two lambs in the morning, two in the afternoon. And this went on day after day. Then there were the great feasts, and there were more sacrifices. Then they would have a drink offering, which is one-fourth of a hin for each lamb. In the sanctuary you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. And that was often wine. Then there were the grain offerings, and this could be the wheat. And we're seeing the elements now of the Mass, the bread, the wine, the Lamb of God, already there in that worship in the desert for those 40 years. And then I say the special feasts all had their offerings as well. So sacrifice is an essential part of Jewish offering. And it was different animals, bulls, rams, the goats for the scapegoat, and we'll see that as well because that's part of our worship in one way too. But summarizing the sacrifices, there were four different ways that they offered sacrifice. The first one was an offering of an inanimate object, such as money or the temple tax, that was simply given to the proper authority. And that is a sacrifice too. They were giving up something of their wealth to the priests for the worship in the temple. Then when it was the first fruits of the land in Thanksgiving, there was no destruction, but they gave the first fruits of what God had given them to the priests offering, offered often, and then the tithes, one-tenth of their produce, 
Again, it was given for the priests and for the poor. Then some sacrifices were partially consumed by fire and the rest was eaten. Some of it was given to the priest. The rest may have been eaten by the family. And we'll see one example of that in just a moment. And then another type of sacrifice was the Holocaust, where the whole animal was burnt normally on the altar. So again, sacrifice an essential part of Jewish worship. And often they would sprinkle some of the blood on the altar and on the people. And we'll see that in just a moment as well. Now, one sacrifice that is especially important for the Jews and especially a precursor of the Eucharist is what was called the Toda, T-O-D-A-H. It was a communion sacrifice in which an animal was taken, was killed, some of it was given to the priest, it was then roasted, and the rest was eaten by the family and perhaps their guests for various reasons. It might have been thanksgiving for some special favor given to the family. It might have been something offered out of devotion, and then it was called a votive sacrifice, or it may have been one offered for one who had taken a vow. That was the votive sacrifice in particular. So thanksgiving, devotion, and the votive sacrifice for one who had taken a vow. And they offered then this, off this uh, animal to the priests and to God, and they ate the rest of it in a communion sacrifice, a communion of the family eating this victim in communion with God because they had offered it to God, and now they were eating some of it in communion with this God to whom they had offered it. And Cardinal Ratzinger, in his book Feast of Faith, 1986, published by Ignatius Press, at least in that year, writes, Structurally speaking, the whole of Christology, indeed the whole of Eucharistic Christology, is present in the Toda spirituality of the Old Testament. That offering to God, that communion of the victim in union with God. The ancient rabbis, and this comes from Scott Hahn in his book, The Lamb's Supper, believed that when the Messiah would come, all sacrifices would cease except the Torah, and that would continue for all eternity. And in fact, with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 under Titus, all other sacrifices did cease, and the Jews to this day do not have a temple and do not have a sacrifice. They do have, as we'll see in a moment too, the synagogue service, which has much to contribute to the Mass. So that the, the, all the other sacrifices ceased and the Toda, in the form now of the Eucharist of the Mass, has continued and will continue for all eternity. Just as other Semitic peoples concluded a contract or covenant with each other by sharing a meal, so to the covenant between Yahweh and his people was symbolically renewed by this sacrificial meal. And we renew the covenant 
of God with his people in Christ, the new covenant in this meal, which is at the same time a sacrifice, which is the Mass. So when we think of the Mass, we remember that it is both a sacrifice and a meal. In the Torah, you had both of those elements, the offering and then the consuming of some part of the victim in the meal. Then there were offerings of lamb, bread and wine. We mentioned that before. Just read a passage from Leviticus from 23. You shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord and the cereal offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and the drink offering with it shall be of wine. So again, we see those elements of the lamb, the bread or fine flour, and the wine. Now, the scapegoat is another ritual that the Jews celebrated in which they took a goat, someone placed his hands on the goat by way of casting the sins of the people onto that poor animal which was then chased out into the wilderness to die. And they chased it away from the camp, away from the people. And this is an image of Christ who takes our sins upon himself and dies outside the city. We read in the letter to the Hebrews in the 13th chapter, we have an altar from which those who officiate in the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. So that scapegoat is a figure of Christ taking our sins upon himself and dying outside the city. And the priest who officiated at that rite was to wear special vestments. And the vestments were to be very rich. We see in Exodus chapter 28 that they were to be made with gold, blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine linen, only the best of materials for the priest. And of course we have a priesthood in the New Testament as well. And the elements are coming together. The meal, the sacrifice, the bread, the wine, the lamb, the priesthood, the vestments, and one of the things that I was telling my students in giving this course, especially when we got to the Mass in the early church, and of course in Scripture, was that the Mass as we know it today is all there described by St. Justin in his two apologies to the Emperor Antoninus Pius in the year 155 AD. All the elements of the Mass are there. The early church that came from the preaching of Christ and his verbal instructions to the apostles. 
the mass of the early church is all there in those early centuries. And I was telling my students, because it just occurred to me so powerfully in preparing that and giving it, that any religion, any denomination, that calls itself Christian and pretends to be the Church of Jesus Christ and does not have a form of worship which they regard as a sacrifice, in which there is communion regarded as the real presence and a priesthood with vestments and an altar is not the church that Jesus Christ founded. We are in this church. We have the fullness of what Jesus taught and what the early church lived. And we see in this, I'll just make a explicit reminder of it, that it is not enough to go to the Bible, sola scriptura, but we see how the Bible was developed and lived out in the early church in what we call, in that global term of tradition, which includes the writings of St. Justin and St. Clement of Rome and the pastor of Hermes and all the other early Christian writings. We see it in the, the rituals like the Mass. We see it in burial tombs, sarcophagi, and the, and the writings on them. We see it in the catacombs. We see it in so many different ways. The tradition. We interpret the scripture in terms of the tradition by which the scriptures were lived out. Now we come to the Passover. And here we see an uncanny parallelism between the Passover is as it was given by God to Moses and the deliverance, the, the liberation from that slavery in Egypt that followed and the Mass and its, its institution. We remember that the Jews... The Israelites, that is, were in slavery for over 400 years in Egypt. The slavery was becoming more and more oppressive. And God raised up Moses to lead his people out of that slavery. And Moses and Aaron worked all those miracles, but they weren't convincing the Pharaoh to let their people go until finally the final night came and all the firstborn males of the animals and of the sons of the Egyptians were killed. And then Pharaoh realized he had to let these people go. Well, on the night before they left, God instructed Moses to tell the people to offer up the Passover. And they were to eat that meal standing up. It was to consist of unleavened bread and bitter herbs, and they were to take a lamb and roast it and eat it between that one family or more families as needed so that nothing remained. This was done on the night before they left. They were to take the blood of the lamb and sprinkle it on the lintels and the doorposts of their house. And the angel of death, when it came, would see the blood of the lamb on their houses and would pass over their houses and kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. And we look at that and those events 
and look at the Mass and its institution on the night before our Lord died, and we see all the parallelism. For example, we just mentioned it was the night before they left out of Egypt, Christ institutes the Eucharist in the very celebration of the Passover, on the night before he dies to free us from that true slavery of sin. And when he comes into the Passover to celebrate with his disciples, St. Luke tells us that Jesus said, I have longed and longed to celebrate this Passover meal with you. If we think of him as God, longing from all eternity to come to this moment of redemption, if we look at him as, not in his humanity, because he is God, but in his living with his Jewish people for those 1,200 years since Moses, to this time, over 1,200 years have passed, every year religiously, the Jews celebrated the Passover, but that was just to be preparation for the Eucharist. And, and Jesus is God can say it for 1,200 years. We have celebrated this Passover. I have longed and longed to celebrate this Passover with you because now I am going to change it into what it was always meant to be, the Eucharist. Then in the first Passover, they consumed a lamb without blemish. Jesus is the Lamb of God without blemish, the sinless Lamb of God. The first Passover would lead them eventually to the promised land of Cana. The death of Christ would lead us to the promised land of heaven. The death of the firstborn male of the Egyptians would move the Pharaoh to end the Israelites' slavery. The death of the firstborn son of Mary and only begotten son of God moves the father to free mankind from the slavery of sin. The blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses saved the Israelites from the angel of death. The blood of the lamb of God saves mankind from eternal damnation. The Israelites consumed unleavened bread and cups of wine in the Passover. Christians received the body and blood of Christ bread and wine changed into his body and blood using the same unleavened bread and wine in the Eucharist. Just as at the time of Christ, the killing of the lambs for the Passover in the temple began at 12 noon, at that hour Christ would ascend the cross and die three hours later. So all of these parallels between that Passover meal, a ritual meal, celebrating their delivery from slavery in Egypt, all of those parallels we see in the Eucharist, in this Mass that is, yes, a sacrifice and also a meal in which we consume the victim. Let us look now at the way the Jews, I believe, celebrate the Passover today. I have a Jewish, well, a former Jewish uh, woman 
friend who I received into the church many years ago, and she retains contact with Jewish friends in Sydney. And a few years ago, I said, I would dearly love to attend the Jewish Seder, which is the Passover meal. And we just haven't been able to arrange it. And I think two out of the last three years, the, the Passover coincided with Holy Week. So it wasn't going to be possible. But one day I hope to be able to witness it. But this is the description that I have found in various books. The Jewish family gathers now to celebrate the Passover. And they call it the Seder, spelled S-E-D-E-R. The head of the family takes three pieces of unleavened bread, or matzah, which can remind us, if we like, of the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He breaks in half the second piece. Reminder of Jesus, who is broken and died on the cross. He then wraps one of these two pieces, of the second of the three pieces of unleavened bread, called the Afikomen, in white linen, symbolizing, if we like, the burial shroud of Jesus, and buries or hides it somewhere in the house, symbolizing the burial. Then the youngest in the family searches and finds this Afikomen and brings it to the table, symbolizing the resurrection. Jesus was buried now he is risen. The head of the family then breaks the afikomen and passes it around for all to eat, as Jesus did in the Last Supper, and as we do in Holy Communion in Mass. The unleavened bread also reminds us of the haste with which the Israelites ate their unleavened bread in that first Passover. When the afikomen is broken and passed around for all to eat, Jews drink the third of four cups of wine called the cup of blessing because it represents the blood of the sacrificed Paschal lamb. They've had the lamb as well. It was this third cup that Jesus gave to his apostles in the Last Supper when he said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The Easter Vigil the antiphon to one of the psalms is our blessing cup is a communion in the blood of Christ. That third cup, remember, in the Seder meal was the blessing cup, the third of four cups of wine. Jesus did not bring, drink the fourth cup called the kala, the K-A-L-A-H cup. <laughs> And he explained, I tell you, I shall not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And those mysterious words, so to speak, can have various understandings. But later that evening, at Gethsemane, Jesus prays to the Father in those familiar words, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This fourth cup, this kala cup, which he understands is the cup of his suffering. Remember that he had asked James and John on one occasion, can you drink of the cup that I am to drink? And they would have not understood undoubtedly 
to which cup he was referring, and they said, we can, but can you drink of this cup of suffering? After he was arrested, Jesus asked Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And many believe that the, the last cup, the fourth cup, the Kala cup, that Jesus drank was that cup of his own suffering and death. And when he's about to die, they put a sponge full of vinegar on a hyssop stick and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And very significantly, the words, it is finished, in Hebrew, are kal. It is finished, the last cup. The finishing cup, he said, color, and then he expires. And I'd like to imagine a scene that we have no way of knowing whether the coincidence was, as I like to imagine it. But remember that in the temple, at the same time that Jesus is dying on the cross, they are slaughtering the lambs for the Passover. Now, you're asking a question which you haven't quite thought of, some of you, and some of you have, so I'll just answer it. And we're not exactly sure of the answer, but you may be saying, well, just a moment, Father. Last night, Thursday night, not, not yesterday, but uh, Jesus' Holy Thursday, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples. But the rest of Jerusalem is celebrating the Passover on Friday. And there's various explanations, one of which that I've seen is that the Galileans may have celebrated it the night before. But all of that serves God's purpose. Because now they're slaughtering the lands, and probably thousands of lands, for all the people that have gathered in Jerusalem. Every family needs a land. They're killing them in the temple. They begin at 12 noon. And when the, the high priest finishes slaughtering the last lamb, he says, Kala, it is finished. And I like to imagine, this is my hyperactive imagination, which sometimes serves a useful purpose. I like to imagine that in the moment that the high priest, whoever priest was officiating, said the words Kala, having killed the last lamb, Jesus on the cross was saying those same words. And in that moment in the temple, the priest heard this terrible rending of the curtain that hung behind him from top to bottom, and you're looking at the height of this room, two stories, beautiful curtain, ever since the reconstruction of the temple some years before by Herod, that curtain is torn in two. At the very moment he says, Kala, it is finished, the lambs have been slaughtered, the Old Testament is finished, the new is opened, the Holy of Holies is exposed, heaven is opened, and all of that would be so symbolic. Now, I think Cecil B. DeMille could make the film and it would be very dramatic. We don't know whether it happened this way. But what if it did? 
I mean, how, how dramatic God could be. Christ is dying, he's saying kala, drinking the fourth kala cup of his suffering. The high priest is slaughtering the last lamb, saying kala, and in that moment, the, the temple curtain is torn in two. And then in the, in the Seder, in the Passover meal of Jews today, they conclude singing the Hallel Psalms, which are hymns of praise. Then another figure of the Eucharist is the manna. The Jews were hungry. God gave them the manna to eat. Our Lord refers to it in the synagogue of Capernaum. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of it and not die. So his body is the, the new manna. Then the sprinkling of the blood of the covenant. We're just putting together all these elements that have something to do with the mass. When Moses read the commandments to the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Little did they know themselves, they weren't going to be very obedient at all. And Moses' own brother Aaron would be making a golden calf quite quickly after all of this. But Moses then took the blood and dashed it on the people. This is the blood of the animals that they just sacrificed. He took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood of the covenant, those animals sprinkled on the altar and some of it on the people. Remember that when our Lord instituted the Eucharist and especially the precious blood, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Words very similar to those of Moses. Now we come to a further element. And if you think of it, we have the penitential rite in the scapegoat. And I forgot to mention that after the person had put his hands on the goat and sent it out into the wilderness, he washed his hands and washed all of his clothes before he went back into the tent of meeting, symbolic of the, the washing of the hands in the Mass and the penitential rite of cleansing. We have the sacrifice of the lamb. We have the meal, especially in the Toda, but also in the Seder, the Passover meal. And we might ask, where is the liturgy of the Word? We find it in the synagogue. And as we know from the New Testament, the synagogue was a building in every town of some size. Nazareth had one, Capernaum had one. The temple was one. It was in Jerusalem. But the synagogue was a building and also it meant a, an assembly of people, just as our word church means an assembly of people and also a building in which they assemble. The synagogue was in every town of some size. And they met there on Saturdays. If you look back into the Old Testament, though, in the earlier books, certainly, you don't find any mention of a synagogue. So the question then arises, well, when did synagogues begin and for what purpose? And it's generally considered that the synagogue 
began during the exile in Babylon in the 6th century. They didn't have their temple. They weren't in Jerusalem. They were in exile in Babylon. And so they would meet in homes, and especially the homes of their prophets or leaders, to console one another, to read the scriptures, to pray. After the exile, even though the temple was rebuilt, synagogues were built in many towns. At first they were places not so much of worship as of study, and they would generally have a school for the children at the synagogue. But in time they became the house of prayer as well, where the Jews would gather on their Sabbath day, their holy day, the seventh day or Saturday. And then after the destruction of the temple, only the synagogue remained as it does today. There are numerous synagogues in Sydney. There is no temple anywhere in the world. What did they do and what did they have in the synagogue? There was always a chest containing the sacred scrolls of the Torah, the five books of the Pentateuch, the five first books of the Old Testament. They were kept in this chest, which was sometimes known as the Holy Ark, an allusion to the Ark of the Covenant, where they had the scrolls of the Old Testament too. And the Ark was placed in a niche in the east wall of the synagogue. Another item was a lamp called the Ner Tamin, or eternal lamp, that was hung before the Holy Ark in the synagogue, and was kept burning constantly out of reverence for the Torah. And now you're beginning to think, isn't all of that reminiscent of the tabernacle with the real presence and the sanctuary lamp kept burning eternally? And indeed, in the book of Exodus 27, God says, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be set up to burn continually. Pure beaten olive oil, the best materials for that lamp that burns in honor of the, the scrolls of the Old Testament, of the Torah. Now, what happens in the synagogue service? It required the presence of ten men in order to proceed. Women were also there, sitting apart from the men. And the synagogue service consisted, and I believe consists, of five parts. First, a greeting. This was the reading of the Shema, that scriptural passage. Here, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And for those of you who may have fallen asleep, I had a um, supposed answers of little children to tests of religion, undoubtedly from the United States. And one of the little children, in giving his review of the Bible, says, in the Old Testament, it says that the, 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 the God, the Lord thy God is one. But I think he was a lot older than that. <laughs> so that wakes you up we can continue here Israel the Lord is our God the Lord is one that means one, one Lord so that was the first part then some prayers 
Then reading from the Torah, the law of Moses, in Hebrew, followed by translation into Aramaic. Fourthly, reading from the prophets, in Hebrew, translated into Aramaic, followed by an explanation of the text that is considered to be part of the fourth part of the synagogue service, the homily, and fifth, a blessing, usually by a priest. You see this in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, at least, the blessing. So here we see the elements of the liturgy of the word. Begins with a greeting. <coughs> we have some prayers, the opening prayer or collect. We have a reading from the scripture. And remember the law and the prophets were the two readings that they had then. We will read in our first reading on Sundays. Very often, most often, the first reading is from the Old Testament. Then we have actually the responsorial psalm, which is from one of the psalms of the Old Testament as well. Then a reading from the New and then one of the Gospels. And the commentary on the text, which is given by the priest or the deacon, and that is the homily. And then finally, a blessing. And just looking at one passage, this is from the Acts chapter 13, how St. Paul and his companions go into the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia. And we read there, And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the officials of the synagogue sent them a message, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, give it. So Paul stood up and with a gesture began to speak. You Israelites and others who fear God, listen. So Paul, the visitor, is invited to give that commentary on the readings. We also remember how Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath. He is invited to comment on the reading, which was from Isaiah. And he says that this scripture is being fulfilled in your presence today. So the synagogue was their place of worship on the Sabbath. Before they celebrated the Sabbath service in the synagogue on the night before, and that is the Friday night as the Jews still do today, they had the Sabbath meal called the Chabura. And this has something to say for us in the Mass too. So the Jewish family gathers on the Friday evening as the Sabbath day is beginning with dusk or the sundown on the evening before, just as our liturgical day begins then, and undoubtedly we take that from the, the Jewish custom. The, the meal is a formal meal, not just one more meal of fish and chips, but a formal meal with standard washings and prayers. The meal began with the blessing of bread and wine using a traditional prayer known as the Barakoth. And here the head of the family says, and just see if these words sound familiar, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. And then for the bread, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And those are the prayers, of course, from the offering of the gifts that the priest now says, and they're quite different 
from the ones that were said in the Tridentine rite. So, with all of these elements, we see how the early Christians would draw on what they had been celebrating as Jews, and undoubtedly inspired by God to do that. The Holy Spirit is active in the early church, moving the apostles, moving their disciples to incorporate into their liturgy in those brief words that our Lord had said, do this in commemoration of me. He must have instructed the apostles more extensively as to what they were to do in honor of him and the Holy Spirit would instruct the apostles as well and they gave us the Mass, which as I said, St. Justin describes in great detail in his two different apologies to the Emperor Antoninus Pius in the year 155. And it's the Mass with all of the parts that we have today. So, what we celebrate today, when we go to Mass tonight, tomorrow, Sunday, what we will see there is what the early Christians did and they took those elements from these various elements from the Old Testament. The idea of the sacrifice, the idea of a sacrificial communion meal, the bread, the wine, the lamb, the priesthood, the washing of hands, the various prayers, the synagogue service, for the liturgy of the word. It's all there in the Old Testament. So I hope this has helped you to understand the Mass perhaps a little bit better and where we got it and to, to whet your appetite to read more about the Mass and its meaning. So thank you for paying attention. I see some of you are actually still awake. It's very hard to me. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Father John Flader. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.